So that was a huge part of failure, feeling like I, again, had not measured up to the expectations of these people around me that I desperately wanted to impress. So a leader, someone in power, and I was seen as some kind of failure or floozy or worthless. I was seen as worthless, reiterating what I already feel inside. So there's this level of like clarification of, oh, yes, I already think that about myself. And so does he. So therefore, it's true. The shame realized it's so much harder than to fight because you don't even believe it about yourself. You believe that whatever he said is true. I'm Sawyer Witted. And I'm Scott Tress. Welcome to The Stories That Make Us. This podcast uses the tool of the Enneagram to explore the beauty and complexity of humanity through stories, both real and fictional. Some episodes, we interview live guests about their stories through the lens of their types. Other episodes, we'll dissect fictional characters to discover their types and learn more about ourselves in the process. Because the reality is, it can be hard to see ourselves accurately. The eye can see everything but itself. Thanks for joining us, and let's get to it. Hello, Scott. Hey, Sawyer. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, that's all I got to say. <laughs> I'm surprised was... you didn't say tired this time. That's your good. I know. I'm trying. Well, you know what? Our last episode, Paul, <laughs> I know. Paul talked to us about how, I don't know if he said it on the air or not, but he talked to us about how his response is always, I'm tired, which is, no, it was on the air. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was. Um, he's like, I'm tired. And I was like, that's not actually like answering how you're doing. <laughs> so anyway, but I, I am doing that. well today good honestly yeah so i have a question for you Mm -hmm. what is the best excuse for being late that you've either used or that you've heard Hmm. while you think i'll just be hasty and answer for myself all right let's hear it my favorite one that i've used Mm -hmm. is that the drive-through line was really long at starbucks (laughs) or that they just took forever I mean, I would just a bad excuse. I don't really go to Starbucks anymore <laughs> now that I'm more into craft coffee and I'm a snob. Mm. I'm not really a snob. Yeah, that's too much money. I'd, yeah, I'll buy Dunkin' Donuts, honestly. <laughs> Starbucks actually just usually makes my stomach hurt. But anyway, I used to go to Starbucks all the time. I used to work at Starbucks. Mm. But yeah, when I wasn't working at Starbucks, um, on my way to work, uh, the one job that I had, there was a Starbucks on the way. And so I would often stop in the morning and get an iced coffee with one pump of vanilla and oat milk. Mm. and uh sometimes the line would take a really long time and i'd arrive to my meetings late or whatever it was <laughs> late and i'd be like sorry the drive through line was really really long because you show up late with a coffee in your mm-hmm. hand you yeah know, i mean it's, it's like there's not really any it's not a good look <laughs> you know it's like oh you're late and you made time to stop and get a coffee mm. yeah shameful not a, not a good look <laughs> well what could i say How yeah well for me i mean i maybe it's just the, the the thinker in me i feel the need to think of, of an actual good excuse uh-huh it's not not really what you want to come in with so, so are you saying my coffee <laughs> excuse is not a good excuse i would i would consider it a poor excuse <laughs> okay you're so, a poor excuse <laughs> so i think the best excuse i heard thinking of what it's like in the northeast i remember a couple years back when there was just over two foot of snow and I was unable to get to work because I literally could not make it. There was no way. The car was completely buried. It took me over an hour just to unbury the car so that I could look at it surrounded by snow. Amazing. Amazing. So it was the snow. Yes. That and that's, is, that I mean, good what, what else can you say? No one else can make it to work. Everyone's buying in on the same excuse. It's a genuine excuse. It's a win-win. It's true. Bravo. So today, the episode, shall we jump into it? Let's do it. We have on the episode today, Luke Harworth. Luke is the other half of the dynamic influencer duo called Twin Sauce. And you can follow them on TikTok, on Instagram. They have over 300,000 followers on TikTok and over 100,000 followers on Instagram. Mm. They are lovely, wonderful human beings. Yes. And today we were talking to Luke. And last week we talked to his twin brother, Paul. So if you missed last week's episode, go check that out. It was Mm -hmm. really good. Luke has had a wide variety of jobs ranging from corporate to artistic entrepreneurial jobs. He's always had a passion for dance. And in this episode, he shares very vulnerably with us what it's like to be a three. Scott, remind us about the core motivations of type three. All right. So for type threes, the core fear is being exposed or thought of as a failure, incompetent, inefficient, or worthless. 
The core desire is to be seen as respected, honored, admired, successful, and valuable. The core weakness is deceit. This shows itself by hiding aspects of who they are from others and ultimately from themselves. They become whatever the picture of success is in whatever environment they currently are at. The core longing and what they really are looking for, that secret sauce, as Sawyer lovingly calls it, is that you are loved for simply being who you are. That's right. Yeah, something that I really enjoyed about this episode was we got into mistyping a little bit because Luke mistyped as a seven, which is really interesting. And Luke kind of explains why he mistyped as a seven initially. So I'll save that for the episode. It's very 3E, why he mistyped as a seven. Yeah, he'll explain that. But yeah, I just thought that was an interesting piece. Mm -hmm. I hope you guys all enjoy our episode with Luke. Hey, Luke. It is great to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is a huge honor. I'm very excited to talk about the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Very passionate. It's been a huge part of my healing. I think my discovery and who I am, which has been very helpful to see where my flaws are and to see what areas to grow, which I think is so exciting. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Luke, we kind of gave you a little intro, but why don't you just tell our listeners who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My name is Luke. I'm from a little tiny town in Nebraska, and I currently am living in uh, Kansas City. Been here for about 10, almost 11 years now, and uh, really love it here. I love the city vibe. I live downtown. I'm just really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. I came to my understanding of who I was through a journey of a lot of conversations and a lot of thinking that other people were crazy. And then I realized, no, we're all crazy. And I'm just a different kind of crazy. I've done a lot of things in my life. It's hard to narrow it down, but Mm -hmm. I got a degree from Calvary University, a small Christian college here in Mm -hmm. Kansas City. I got an associate's in Bible because I had no idea what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. then I got an undergrad in business and then a postgrad in organizational development. I was passionate about helping small companies thrive. Mm -hmm. And then I did not do that for a long time. (laughs) So I ended up jumping from job to job a little bit in college. I like worked a lot and paid off my school before I even graduated. I was able to go a lot of times this month to month leading up to the end of the semester, but I worked a lot and was able to make ends meet. And that was really awesome. It was a huge achievement for me. I was very proud of that, especially going on through and doing my master's and doing all of that in five years, completely debt-free. So that's kind of a huge feat for me. But throughout that time, I worked a lot of random jobs. And I thought that after I got my master's, I would just be given this cool corporate job that would then allow me to learn and then go and help small companies grow. Something they don't tell you is after you get your master's, you realize how little you actually know. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of like this feeling of, oh, I guess I could get a doctorate, but I don't want to. That I thought figured <laughs> I could get the practical knowledge. And so then I went to a company called Cerner and I worked for them as a contract agent in a sense, working with doctors all over the US and Canada, teaching them how to use the software. Mm-hmm. And then That was terrible. And I wanted to go do my small business thing. I was like, oh, I need to actually do that. And I'm about 20, at this point, I'm about 26, Mm. 27 years old. And I go work for a company called Split Log Coffee. And that really had a huge impact. I was able to help them grow. It wasn't just me. There was a whole team of us. Mm. But but I was basically a glorified barista for a long time until I was done, actually. I was a GM. I was doing all their marketing. And I was also working bar shifts. And I loved it. And I was... There was months during COVID where I worked every day for at least a month or two. Like mm-hmm. you just never stopped. And I, it really did give me life. Mm-hmm. And throughout that time, throughout COVID, Paul and I started posting dance videos on, on TikTok. We'd been online with YouTube and other things, Instagram, but had never really seen growth. We'd always wanted it. We daily vlogged for two years. We did weekly uploads to our YouTube channel, all kinds of things, but we never saw any massive growth. And even then on those apps, the only growth we ever had was when we danced on the apps. But for some reason, we didn't see that as a correlation. And we kept trying to be other people, classic three. But we kept trying to chameleon as other creatives that we Mm. saw doing well. So we would try to copy off them. Yep. And that never worked. And then suddenly we gave up. It was about 2019, late 2019. I said, it's not going to happen for us. So let's just stop. And we did. We just stopped. And then early the next the next year, we started uploading to TikTok regularly. And within the first three videos, we had done 
more in like interactions and impressions than we had ever seen on YouTube or Instagram or wow. Facebook. So we were like, oh, maybe we should just stop being what we think everybody else should be and just be little old musical theater us. Mm. So we did that. And that's what we leaned into throughout that time. We learned a lot of other people's dances, started doing trendy stuff and doing our own fun content. We saw some relative growth quickly and then it seemed to happen all at once. And that was a, a lot of fun. We seemed to connect well with our audience in something that felt so authentic, and so real. Yeah. And that was really fun. Got connected with the awesome. studio and then started seeing a lot of massive growth in our skill and talent. So, And now I'm in a contracted deal with Legally Blonde this summer. So we're doing an actual like regional theater, which I could have never done two or three years ago. So mm. very excited. That feels very like a full circle moment. But yeah. it's, been a, it's been a long journey, but we're here now. Yeah, so good, Luke. How did you first discover your Enneagram type and all of that? Oh, wow. Yeah, it was actually about, gosh, I don't even know a year, probably 2019. It was before the pandemic, but a friend of mine was in town from Nashville I was an internet friend that I'd known for several years through YouTube, through like the hipster YouTube space. And my good friend at the time who I'd also met through YouTube, who was local, mm. they were getting together. She was coming into town to hang out. So that we all got together one evening and they were sitting around and they were saying, have you ever done anything with the Enneagram? And I was like, I don't even know what that is. This other friend had already introduced to me to Myers-Briggs and that just confused me. I was like, another one? Are you serious? <laughs> we all sat there. I said, it would be fun. It was fun to do last time. So we we all tested and me and Paul both tested that night and then along with a lot of other friends who were in that group. Mm -hmm. And I originally tested as a seven, which made sense because all I ever saw in life was a seven. I like mm. was looking all day long at a seven, my twin sure. brother. And so sure. <laughs> there was an, a, an element of it, testing like him, which is weird. Mm. But then after some research and reading and becoming a little bit more fixated on it, I realized, no, you're definitely not. You're a three. <laughs> and then for a while, I was convinced I was a six. And I, I was in reading and then Michael's friend was like, no, you're definitely a three and you should stop this because I think you're just self-deprecating. I did go through a time where I was trying to figure out, am I a six? Am I a nine? But then through actually mm -hmm. some other coworkers who are all in leadership together, there was a nine, there was a three and there was a six. And we were all upper management and we all just went in cycles. It was like the Bermuda Triangle and, and it was quite dynamic. And that helped me realize, no, you're the three in this group. That was helpful. But yeah, that's where I mm. discovered my type. And from there, it's been a lot of research and study and development, long, deep, hard conversations with other people who are well aware. What helped you distinguish the fact that you were three? I realized when I was reading about the seven that my innate desire, there was this desire for happiness. And I do want that was like this element of fun and adventure. And I could see that in myself. But it wasn't until reading about the other types that I was realizing that these this core motivation and this achievement oriented, mm -hmm. the achiever, and this feeling like you'll never be enough. And so you'll continue to climb and climb and climb and you'll never find success in a sense that I was realizing, no, that's what I've been doing my entire life. Mm -hmm. And that was where it was like, no, there's more here than just this thing that I see in my brother that so often we are so compared and we are so microscopically dissected by other people that we just assumed we were the same. Like we were just, of course, we're the same. Sure. And our friends, of course, knew that was different and that there was differences there. But there was a lot of just sheer, I think, fear, but then also like a, a chameleon type defense mechanism to become the seven, because that's what I saw. And also that's what I saw as being valuable to other people. So you're speaking to the type three's primary defense mechanism, which is identification. And yes. the three will identify with someone else's identity or mm -hmm. not someone else's, something else's. Mm -hmm. It could be someone. It's interesting how you say like when you tested as Paul almost mm -hmm. because you were so like identifying with your twin. And, yeah. and some people are like, why do they do that? Like that, that just seems shallow or maybe chameleon like. And it's like, actually, if you understand, which is why the Enneagram is so helpful, if you understand the fear going on underneath that or the internalized childhood message, right? That it's mm -hmm. not okay for the three to have your own identities or your own feelings. Mm -hmm. Then it makes sense that if that's just an assumed truth, it's not okay to be myself just by myself, mm -hmm. then I'm going to, I'm going to find my worth and value in, in everything outside of myself, mm -hmm. whether that's achievement or accolades or dressing the most attractively or <laughs> mm -hmm. looking the best by going to the gym or identifying with your brother. I think it, it just makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. It, it's been a journey for sure. A lot of people would say that the three is the chameleon. And I was like, I couldn't agree more. But that was another reason that I was realizing, 
oh no, you're not a seven. Hmm. And I think the biggest thing, and I think we'll get to it later, but there is in the chameleon, there's a sense of loss in like death to self in a sense. As a young kid, you feel, yeah. especially as a twin, I think we're just felt like we were examined more than not maybe more. I think everybody's examined, but we just felt so verbally pitted against each other hmm. that there was, and, but we were also a unit. And so there was all this discourse on who's different. And we were both very independent with each other. We were very much a unit, but then from everyone else around us, we were very independent. We weren't really like mama's boys or daddy's boys. We just did our own thing. And a lot of people made fun of us. So even from the time that we were young and we were very interested in music and movement and just activity, and we loved to have big imaginations and we'd make up huge storylines and we'd pretend we were in movies. And a lot of people would make fun of us for that. And not we weren't public schooled, so we didn't have like that. I, I'm so thankful we weren't because, oh my gosh, I can't imagine where I'd be now if I was. But but even just in the church or in other friends that hung out after school or whatever, sure. there was always this underlying issue of, you guys are weird. And mm. there was, from a young age, when I was young, I didn't realize what was happening. Mm. But then I started changing any element I could because I wasn't enough. Mm. So then yeah. there was this element of let's just become and I say let's because I was very much a manipulating Paul in mm. doing everything that I needed so that we could be perceived a certain way. Yeah. And we never achieved that. Like it never achieved to where I wanted to achieve. Yeah. So in a sense, that was another set of failure. I was never perceived in a way I wanted. Mm. And I was always perceived as weird or nerdy or overly creative or effeminate or whatever. Yeah. These things, these words that people would call you your friends would joke about, but then mm. it was even more mortifying in a sense because then people would pit you in those elements and say, Paul's more this than Luke and Luke's more this than Paul. Mm. And a lot of that is physical, but also personality wise as your friends mm -hmm. got to know you. And for me, a, a huge facet of that was that I was always called the fat twin. And so as a young kid, I was just a little bit chubbier than Paul. And if you look at pictures, you do see I am a little bit like fuller in the face, but I was never fat. But there was a, a little bit of extra childhood tub that kind of sure, came with sure. me. And Paul was significantly sicklier than I was. And so mm. he was born smaller and just didn't put on weight as a kid. So mm. he looks skinnier. So I don't fault any friends, childhood friends, for saying that I was a fat twin. Sure. I just don't think they understood the weight that it carried. Mm. And, and that developed into eating disorders in high school and college and so much so that my fitness pal, where you can track your calories, oh, yeah. would email me and say, you have to eat more food because I was rigorously like tracking my stuff and they could see that I was inputting daily. I'm like, no, you're not eating enough no. or you're flubbing it. Either yeah, way, like right. it's not helpful for you. Okay. So that kind of, that's another whole thing. But this element of failure that just followed me, it seemed mm. like through life, it's everything I tried I failed. I remember getting a job as a helping out with sh like shingling roofs. And it was the thing my brothers were doing and we would just go help clean up the shingles off the ground. And we were basically cheap labor. Yeah. And we were young, I think 12 and 13 and we'd do this, but we were never good enough for the guy who was working. We were, yeah. it was it always a very, very angry reaction. We were never fast enough or whatever. And it made us not really want to work. And I was like 13, so I didn't care. It was like, what money? Money's not valuable to me right now. I just want to have fun. Right. So then this feeling of I can't even be good at this job. I mowed a lot of lawns and I still wasn't very good at that, surprisingly. And I was fine, but it wasn't like something that I found any kind of fulfillment in either. Mm -hmm. and so there was a level of any time that I was reprimanded for anything, it was hard to keep going. And it wasn't until I worked in a like community centric environment that I felt like I was succeeding at something. So I worked mm. at a grocery store and I excelled rapidly there. I had mm. responsibility thrust upon me and I was given more hours and I was working a lot and I was feeling very rewarded. My boss there had never had kids, but he treated all of the youth employees as if they were his kids. Mm. And so he was very encouraging. He owned a dojo. He was very cool, but he like really poured into us a lot of like belief and saying, no, I, you could work here the rest of your life and I would love to have you. You would be a huge benefit mm. to us. And it was very, very rewarding to be seen sure. as something valuable. Mm. And that was my first taste, I think, at success. We started sure. dancing at this time, but we had no classes. We lived really rurally and there was nothing we could do. Yeah. So a lot of our female peers were very excited that we were 
showing interest in this form of art mm. that was, I guess, abruptly reprimanded by our male counterparts, hmm. that they were very excited that we were willing to do this and had the creative yeah. ability to even choreograph. But we did it and we would teach people in the community and even some of the guys would get into it too. But a lot of times we were more poked fun of. It was not very cool. Sure. But there was this element of, oh, I'm good at something else that some people see as cool. And hmm. some people, this has like helped me in my confidence. This has helped me in this area. At the same time, we were ridiculed. Yeah. by other people and it wasn't until i was think i was a sophomore in high school that i really realized this is so stupid that i didn't realize i knew that people didn't mm. like dancing and, and this guys and we had just started and gotten into it over the course of our early our late junior high early high school years but we we're in a missions trip in in mexico and it was like this it's really hard to paint the picture because it's hard to understand but there's a mm. lot of youth groups coming to this one campsite in mexicali mexico and so we'd have like an evening like service with 1300 people but then we'd all go out during the day using like rvs and stuff and do like vbs's or something and we all come back and have this big campsite during that time on the way to mexico coming from california we had a flat in one of our rvs and we taught a bunch of the girls on our rv part of this dance that we just choreographed because whatever it was like to toby max burn for you or something <laughs> and we taught him in this parking lot of this walmart while we were getting our tire fixed and throughout the week we kept teaching him more and more and then it got the attention of the people putting on the entire like camp event this like evening event and they wanted us to perform it live so we're rehearsing this and we're like oh gosh you guys don't have time to really get this under your belt but we're gonna do it anyway like why not let's just do it and uh, I went and I like walked out of where we were rehearsing this little like dirt patch on the side. And I walked into the middle of the RV like circle of our group. And I heard the youth leader brutally mocking us like from the edge. And I'm watching this. And then my brother, Steven, who's just two years older, his friends were all around joining in. And I witnessed all this from the side. Nobody, I don't know if anyone saw me. Mm. Steven saw me. But other people, I'm not sure if they understood the impact. I remember the guy who was like the leader was really like being brutal. What was he saying? Uh, to be honest, I've blocked a lot of it out. So I don't know for sure, but I do remember there was gesturing and there was implications made about my sexuality and mm -hmm. other things. And then there's also not just mine, but Paul's. Mm -hmm. And then there was also like skill referenced. I do remember that, like in the, saying they're not anything to shake a stick at. It was the next night that they asked us to go on stage and do it in front of the entire thing, which was very vindicating. It was very like, that's not the right word, is it? It was very... Like you felt justified? I felt justified, I think, at that point. Yeah. At least, yeah, at least somebody yeah. liked it, you know? like, like mm -hmm. right. um, But that night, this is, I think, a huge part of my development. That was a huge part of failure. Feeling like I, again, had not measured up to the expectations of these people around me that I desperately yeah. wanted to impress. So a leader, someone in power. Yeah. And I was seen as some kind of failure or floozy or worthless. I was seen as worthless, reiterating what I already feel inside. So there's this level of like justification or clarification of, oh yes, I already think that about myself and so does he. So therefore it's true. The shame realized as like something that's so much harder than to fight because you don't even believe it about yourself. Yeah. You believe that whatever he said is true. My brother Steven did witness that and Paul didn't witness that. But Paul got the whole story. I didn't tell Paul, but Paul got the whole story when Steven pulled us aside that night after chapel. I remember begging God to change me into anyone else that night and in the service just praying at the stars in Mexico that God would just either kill me or change me into someone else. That's what I was like. I just I don't want to be me anymore. Why did you make me? But that night after, well, whew, after begging God to change me, my brother who had never shown interest at all in the dancing and had never really supported us until right before that trip, he'd done a little bit. He pulled Paul and I said, I said, I want to go on a walk. Do you need to go to the bathroom? And I said, no, and I said, yes, <laughs> you do. And he's, and I said, okay. So I said, he's like, where's Paul? So I went and got Paul. And we're walking along this group of thousands of people of RV parks basically around this desert. And he says, I know you heard what this leader was saying. 
And I want you to know that I don't believe that about you. And right after you left, I yelled at everyone in that group. (laughs) And I told them that if they wanted to be friends with me, then they had to be friends with you. And uh, I don't remember ever, (laughs) ever having an emotional reaction with Steven before that point. At my youth, he was very much an older brother. But that I don't even remember what all I said. And I don't even know if that's accurate. But there was something about him standing up for us. And that was so meaningful that he would go out on a limb with the cool kids and the people that I wished I was friends with and would stand up for us in a way that I'd never been stood up for before. And it wasn't even myself standing up. I could have yelled and screamed, but it wouldn't have helped. But but that was pretty pretty altering. And that was crazy too because we had never really had much of a relationship before that other than being brothers. But then after that, we were very close into this day. We are very close and he's very proud of us. And it's mm. been fun to that grow is. together. As, yeah. Love that. Wow. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Seriously. I'm serious, Luke. Thank you for sharing that. As I think about you and just the pleasure of getting to know you as a friend, but then also knowing this kind of framework of Enneagram, like motivations to feel like you spend so much of your life trying to gain worth from outside of yourself, feeling the truth which is that you are just worthy because you exist. You being a human being makes you worthy of love. Done, period. That's it. (laughs) End of story. And perceiving that that's not actually true all growing up, right? Right. And then to actually have someone who's an authority over you basically say that, affirm that, but then have someone else in authority over you who's your own brother, Mm -hmm. older brother, to come and just give grace and kindness and pour compassion over Mm -hmm. that. That's moving, man. That's love in action right there. And totally. it's a beautiful thing. I often share that story when I'm trying to tell older kids how much they mean to younger kids, older yeah. siblings. siblings yeah. yep. Because I don't think people realize the impact nope. that the older kids have. Even in a studio setting or in a dojo or wherever, yeah. in a school, an upperclassman taking the time to defend or to support an underclassman. It's a huge yeah. deal. And it makes a huge difference, especially in those volatile times. I, I mean, even now, I think as a 30-year-old man, if a 40-year-old man did that for me, I'd be like, shoot, dog. We'll be friends forever. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the questions you asked in the when we were talking before yeah. was, what's like a childhood story that you see that you were yeah. like, your type yep. was evident from a young from a young time, when it was yes. early. Yeah. And I think that I went through that a little bit in what we just talked about. But I do think there's an element that kind of plays into the story I just painted about my brother. But growing up, we would go to this camp. And I think during this time, I really didn't understand a whole lot of social norms. I was just being myself and being crazy. And Paul and I were just nuts. And we talk a lot. It's evident mm. that we're just talkers. So <laughs> I love it. That was brutally teased all the way through our whole lives. And it's something we're both very insecure about. But I do feel like we do it so that we don't feel silence. Like we mm-hmm. don't like silence and we avoid that. Sure. Even in our own like living together in, a, in an apartment life, there's yeah. often not silence. And so in that time, we would go to camp and that's where we had a lot of like social norms being established because that's where a lot of peers our age were all coming together, especially when you're in junior high and early high school. And my brother, Stephen, was two years older. And he was the quintessential popular boy where everybody wanted to be Stephen's friend. Mm -hmm. And Stephen didn't even know it. Like it was, he was a goofball. He rode a motorcycle. He was cool. He was just a tease. Everyone loved him. The amount of girls who had crushes on him. Like it was like he was the quintessential and he was very attractive too. He's a very attractive man. And so that helped him too. He had no idea. Like he was just like, like just... (laughs) Whatever. And he had a blast. He was so fun to be around. And I do understand that. Yeah. From the point that I remembered everybody wanted to be friends with Steven to the point that my entire personality and my goal was to become him mm-hmm. because that's what was cool. Mm-hmm. And I would try to mimic his jokes and I would try to mimic his personality. And to be real, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work when yep. somebody who's not that body does that. It's okay. And honestly, it's been a learning experience. I told him that recently and he was like, why me? And I was like, you were (laughs) the quintessential it man in every aspect of my life. Like Mm -hmm. I could see how people looked 
up to you and respected you. So I think that led into too, mm. when he stood up for us, that was a huge deal yeah. to me as a sophomore in high school when that happened. But even then I followed him to college. So he went to college, he graduated after two years with an associate's degree and left. And then Paul and I came in and we tried to be him. We tried to say, we're not going to dance anymore. We're not going to be in theater. They told us those kids are weird. We're not going to be anything. We'll just be friends with his friends and they'll make us into who he is. We can just become whoever we want to be because nobody knows who we are. So there was this level, I can rewrite history now. I can finally be cool. I can finally not be the freak Mm -hmm. who talks a lot. And so we tried to hide. We did. And I say we because we both did, but (laughs) I I really tried to hide behind a mask of something But I guess you could call me a really bad three because I had a terrible time doing that. I really, I still connected with people that wouldn't be considered cool. Mm -hmm. Many of my friends were just my friends and we just chilled and had fun together. You just, you mesh with people Mm -hmm. and it wasn't always Steven's old friends. And I remember going and doing stuff with Steven's old friends and being like, I don't enjoy this. This is not my people. And that was... Mm -hmm. Not something I really understood until Paul and I tried to like dissect it later. We'd be like, why don't we enjoy that? That's not fun. <laughs> but some of those guys did become very influential like mentors to us in a, some ways later. But in the moment of them trying to, in a sense, see us as Steven and just replace us with him was very difficult for us to fit that mold because we sure. weren't that mold at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there's a huge part of my growth and development realizing When did you realize you were a three? Me trying to chameleon all throughout these stages of life to become Steven or a version of Steven that I thought people (laughs) would like, even if it wasn't that. And that was starving myself because Steven was naturally very skinny and I was not. Steven was also very buff and he worked out like six times. Like he did not go to the gym often. So that was hard. And I started going to the gym. I started like bulking trying to, but then also without eating because I wanted to lose weight. So that was terrible. Not a great thing to put (laughs) together. So in that time, I really started realizing, yikes, I didn't realize it. Other people were telling me often, Mm. this is not really working and you're really struggling. And Mm. I think that was a huge part of solidifying again, this worthlessness of you're not enough. You're never going to be enough. You'll never Mm -hmm. be Steven. And Paul talks about this and it was a huge inspiration to me to watch him go through this experience. And so I'm going to share it, but we got involved in theater because we lived across the hall from a guy who was in a theater production. And my brothers had always said, these guys are weird. You don't need to be involved in that. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. And I don't think they even were, they were just trying to help guide us socially in college. Sure. And this guy said, Hey, we need dead bodies for, <laughs> for arsenic and old lace. You guys are super like, you're good dancers. And at this point, we had started dancing again. I had decided to do it in the talent show. Then everybody knew. It was so much fun. It went over with a bang. And people really enjoyed it. I did not expect that at a conservative Christian school where they put dancing between alcohol and drugs. Yeah. So, um, and started taking classes. In the middle of that semester, I was in the show as a corpse. I said, yes. I said, it can't hurt to be a corpse. I only have to go to two weeks of rehearsal and I get to go to the after party. Okay. That sounds like fun. So Paul and I did that. And Paul said, that's where I found my people. Mm-hmm. And Paul said, I finally was able to feel like I didn't have to have a guard up all the time. And I didn't have to become anyone else. And to be honest, I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I was forming friendships with people that mm-hmm. are still friends to this day, like that I still see on a regular basis to this day, and which I think is college. But it was through mm-hmm. theater and dance that I met those people, not through trying to be something that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time where it was like, no, like validating who I was. It was the first time I saw validation in who I was. And that was huge. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that, man. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like, and especially as a three and with the chameleon nature, it's probably hard to know your passions because you're constantly doing, well, what's their passion? I'll do that. What's their passion? Mm -hmm. I'll do that. But it sounded like this, you're starting, at least at this moment in college, you're starting to be like, wait, okay, who are my people? What is the passion that I want to go down? So I would, I would ask like, in that moment when you started to say, okay, what do I want rather than what am I going to be when I'm trying to be Steven? What would you say you started to find as your passion and what you're passionate about? Yeah, I think at this point, I knew I was passionate about dancing because no matter how much teasing came my way, I never stopped, mm. which was huge because as a three, yeah. you get some kind of negative flack and you'll stop it. Sure. Like you'll just change. And this was the one thing that nobody could beat out of me. Mm. And so I knew 
like it was the one thing I would never sacrifice. Like I was not about to sacrifice for myself. So I knew that that was a part of me that I didn't want to lose. And that was good. But it was when people started saying, this is cool. Mm. And you're good at this thing that I started finding my people and those passions were able to be ignited even more. So at this point, I dove in completely. I did have a falling out with theater my sophomore year. I got to love me some theater people now. I really do. But they're <laughs> an odd bunch. And I just had, <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a little bit of flack and some tension in my sophomore year that, that in the cast of Susical, which is probably my least favorite show, aside from Crucible that I did my sophomore year as well. Rough. And so... At that point, I said, I'm done. I want to keep dancing, but I'm done with whatever this is. And that's mm. when Paul said, no, I want all in. Mm. And at this point, we'd had some, yeah, he majored. So this, we had some relative success on YouTube. And I knew that if he said, I'll major, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to see you for two years. Mm. I won't see you for two years. And it wasn't that I was just cutting ties. It was like, I lived with him and I didn't see him for two years yeah. because yeah. it was in, encompassing. And at this point, all of my worth and value is in the fact that I was a dancer and we had this semi-successful YouTube channel. And by semi-successful, I mean, we had a thousand subscribers, which was huge to us. Like it wasn't successful. But with the momentum that we were having, I had these feelings like, oh no, this is it. So when Paul says no, and I'm trying to manipulate him because Mm. up until this point, I've always been able to. And he says, no, this is something I want to do. I did not say, okay. I didn't go down without a fight, but... Again, I was always in control. I always knew what I wanted here. Mm. And it wasn't theater because I'd been hurt. So then there was this pain and I didn't understand what he saw in it. I was like, what do you see in this? I understood that the people made you feel seen. That's cool. You can still hang out with the people, but why do you feel like you need a major? What are you going to do with that? Mm. And a lot of, I think, my threeness, this idea of success and achievement. I'm like, the path of theater is... an winding, endless drama fest. Like, why would you want that? There's no success there unless you want to go to Broadway and you're not going to make it to Broadway. But that's me self-deprecating these things. Mm -hmm. So we fought a lot for those two years. I did kind of have a revival where I saw The Little Mermaid, the traveling tour. And I said, I do love this. This is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I had to get out of the bubble that it was the college we were in, I think, to see that. But Mm -hmm. in that time, going back to this passion, finding your people through that time, I really struggled to find my people because I annexed myself from this area that was accepting for fear that it wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to be. And I had really no one to go to because I never found my people outside of that. So I struggled a lot. Loneliness during that time I met, I had a really good friend that I met through the internet who was not at school, several friends outside of the Calvary bubble, if you will that were like my outlet. And that's who I like did stuff with. It was not inside the Calvary bubble. And that was good. I wasn't completely alone, but but they were all busy and had jobs and went to different schools. And so it was hard to always have something to do. So I drowned myself in work at that point. And I said, I'll just work because I got to make money somehow. This is another pivotal moment where I look back and I see my threeness really developing. Again, there's this almost confirmed sense of worthlessness. I feel like the only thing, this dream, the only dream that I have is to be someday some kind of rich, successful businessman. Mm. So the only thing I know how to do is to go to school for business, which is what I was, do- what I was doing, and then to dive headfirst into the little bit of work I had. So I was working 40 hours as a lifeguard and managing lifeguards and working on teaching CPR classes and anything that they would give me. I was also working as a gymnastics coach. At one point, I was doing general contracting. I was hiring general contractors. I was working at Starbucks. I did everything under the sun. And this is all while doing an accelerated master study program. There's a sense of failure that I saw as a kid that was worthlessness. It was confirmed in the dancing, but also academically. I got a 16 on the ACT. I'm not stupid. I just panicked. And I also failed part of my GED because I was homeschooled. I had to get a GED mm-hmm. and I failed part of it. I had to redo it, the writing section. So I already feel stupid. I feel like according to like normal studies, I'm stupid. So I worked really hard. I was like, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make money. I'm not going to go into debt and I'm going to get good grades. And I did. I graduated with cum laude with my undergrad. And then I was, a, I actually got a 3.985 in my master's, which I was very Crazy. grateful for. So I have the academics I to do it. I just wasn't on paper looking very smart Mm. at this time. So I just dove into that. 
I was like, this will make me successful. If I could get a 4.0 in my master's, that will erase everything from the past. If I can get a 3.8 at least in my undergrad, because I had a rough start getting used to college. But if I can dig myself out of my first two years, then I'll make it, it'll be easier. No one's going to think I'm stupid. So there's that. And then going into this whole like workaholism track of just trying to build something to make me feel successful. And then my brother, who I look exactly like, not giving a care in the world (laughs) and making more money than me, working four days a summer. Not true. He was a photographer. So he worked outside of that with editing and stuff. But from my perspective, he's watching TV all day long. And I'm working my butt off trying to just make ends meet. And we tell a story. Paul, one time I went in and I had to pay my bill. And Paul was going in at the beginning of the semester to pay his. And Paul did work on campus at a little coffee shop. But he had $200 of credit on his account. He didn't have to pay anything for that semester. And I had a $2,000 bill that I had to pay at the beginning of the semester just to get started with the next semester. Rough. I was so mad. Oh, I don't <laughs> because it seemed like everything I did failed. Like I couldn't even do the right thing. I could even do the career path and not even make it right. Mm. Then we graduate. I go work for this company called Cerner. Paul, like I've got a degree. I could do that. Jumps right in and does it too. So I still haven't even gotten to the leg up in the corporate world. I can't even succeed there. Paul goes to a sandwich shop, ends up making more than he made at the corporate job because of tips. So then I leave and go do the same thing with a coffee shop. I definitely didn't make more there than I did at the corporate (laughs) job, but I was full of passion. And that was the first place where I really felt like I was where I was supposed to be, regardless Mm -hmm. of success, because Mm -hmm. I found somewhere I felt like I belonged. And that there is like this, like in my trajectory, this sense of I'm trying to find just somewhere where I belong. Mm -hmm. And I found my fit in the coffee industry and the dance community which happened, I think, after that when I did TikTok. That was a huge part. It's been a long journey. And I just turned 30. (laughs) And I feel like in the last two years, I finally had some breakthroughs. Mm. But a huge part of that, I think, is the Enneagram and learning Mm. myself and what I actually need. And Mm. this is, I think, not I'm not trying to conclude, but in in a sense of a conclusion of where I am now, I do think that there is a level of like worthlessness and pain and chameleon nature that we will almost never overcome. Yes. But by the grace of God, I can see my worth and how he sees me, even if I can't see it in myself. Mm. Because if I look at the story of grace in the gospel, Jesus didn't need me to achieve a master's degree with a 4.0 in order to die for me. No, he asks us to trust that his death is enough for our salvation. Mm. And therefore I'm saved. I'm worthy of him dying a very brutal and terrible death that he was willing to do for me, which means that I'm worthy, even though I don't feel it or see it, or if it doesn't seem real to me. Mm -hmm. So that's the journey. And that's what what I think the beauty of the Enneagram is that I will always struggle with this self-doubt, this achievement. If I could just achieve the next level, I'll be worthy. But it's not the case. If you would have asked me five years ago, What's like the goal for YouTube? What would be your goal follower count? And if I said, man, I just wish we could get to 100,000 followers. I have 300,000 followers and I feel no less worthless now than I did then because it's a worthless pursuit. Fame is a worthless intoxicating potion that will just take and take and take and take and take. And it never is fulfilled. It's never satisfied. There's always someone bigger. So learning that and understanding yourself helps give you guard points and places to stop. I think this is the, why the, the Enneagram is so beautiful because it gives you a map of where you're going to struggle and how to undig yourself mm-hmm. from that struggle because in essence, it'll lead down a very dark path very quickly, yeah. mm-hmm. especially in our day and age right now where we compare ourselves to everybody on the internet. Yep, facts. <laughs> I always say the core longing, right? There's four core motivations right. for every type. I always say the core longing is the secret sauce. Yeah. It's what, it is what saves you from the trap of your type. That is that you are loved for simply being you. And it is very hard to believe that. Of mm. course. I, and I know that's like the secret sauce. And sure. it is, but it is so hard. You yep. spent all of your life rejecting that that could, that, like it's too good. That, that could possibly not be true. That, yeah. that could not possibly be true. Yep. Yeah. That is so far from what I want to believe. But in essence, I have to. And there's so many people in my life who've proved that. Yeah. That have stuck with me 
through my terribleness and my selfishness and my pride because the worthlessness is shame and the shame breeds pride and the pride leads to anger and angry people hurt people. Mm. I guess hurt people hurt people, which is what we're talking about. But yeah, it's crazy. As you're talking, one of the things I keep thinking about, and it's a similar thing that we talked about with Paul in our last episode, Um, because you guys share this in being threes and sevens. So threes, sevens, and eights, they're all repressed in their heart center. Mm. And it's really interesting for threes, right? Because they're in the heart center. Mm-hmm. But what that basically means is that you take an in information through your feelings. You take an in information in the world through how it makes you feel shame or not feel mm-hmm. shame, right? But the way that you act in the world is you repress that heart. You're like, no feelings, no emotions. I don't, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel my own feelings. I'm going to move out into the head space and the gut space, logic and intuition and Mm -hmm. movement. I'm just going to go. And so for you, I would love to just hear, yeah, from your own three lens, from your own Luke lens, (laughs) what is that like for you? How do you experience that repression of your heart, of your own feelings? I think it's so interesting because it's so repressed, it's hard to see. Sure. Like it is so repressed. Oh, yeah. But- I had a good friend who helped me like to sit in emotion and to realize a lot of things, get down to the nitty gritty, be angry. What are you actually angry about? And that was really helpful for me to understand to where those feelings go. But the journey, it's hard sometimes for me to even understand that I see the world emotionally, but it makes mm-hmm. total sense that I do. Recently, we went and saw Les Mis. And uh, Les Mis is obviously a very sad show talking about the miserables. Yes. And I hated it. I could not connect to it. There's no dancing. So, of course, I'm a dancer. I want to see dancing. But that's just a shallow, I think, reason why I didn't like it. And I think the real thing is I'm already miserable. Why would I want to see other people being miserable? Mm. And there's, I don't want to connect with that. No, that's not fun. And I come to escape. This is not escape. Like, this is too real. I'm not sure if that's what it was. I thought the entire second act, why don't I like this? <laughs> this is usually something I'd really like. But like, why don't I like this? But I liked Miss Saigon, which is also a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that it does have a lot to do with this level of there's a grace pictured and that's hard for me to accept. And it's hard for me to even connect with because I don't feel that it's relevant to me. So I repress that and then become angry or defensive because everyone around me says, it's so great. Don't you love it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's something wrong with me because I don't love it. But I'm not even fully processing why I don't love it. I'm not processing my feelings. I'm just pushing it down and saying, no, 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 that's wrong. And you're wrong for liking it. So That's bad. That's stupid. Why would you like that? This is so dumb. Yeah. But it's not dumb. It's just that I can't process the level of emotion that the writer needs me to. And that's on, in a sense, on me. But realizing that, I think, and that's something that I literally had to, we, we have a whole... YouTube video coming out about that, like where we sit and talk right after we see the show and you'll see me struggling with it. Like I cannot Mm. verbally comprehend why I don't like it. It's so hard for me. And I even go into the shame, like maybe that's why, but I don't know. But there is this like level of like processing disconnect that I like shove it. And I'm like, Mm. no, that makes me feel, therefore it is not good or Mm. something. And therefore then I move away from it and I move to anger or strife or debate like where this like logical debate that i need to go into you literally just said in different words you said the what you said i know (laughs) oh no that's not what i was gonna say (laughs) no No, but i did i regurgitated what you said but you helped me process that so thank you that's the point of this though like i wanted to hear i want to hear this from your perspective right i have the head knowledge and honestly i of all the other types i relate the other than my type two self I relate the hardest and the most to type three because so much. Like I lean into that three wing so heavily. So And I lean into my two wing like crazy. We're like so just inverts of each other, man. Yep. It's true. We need to talk more. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that you were just saying the childhood message. It's not okay to have your own feelings or identity. Mm-hmm. I think the words that you said were because XYZ makes me feel something and feeling something and that's not good. I think Mm -hmm. that's what you said. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's this internal, I know you obviously know that's false, but it's this internal like subconscious way of just living as a kid. And then you become an adult and you just, you only see through one lens, right? Mm -hmm. Like your two eyes are the only two eyes you have. You can't have other eyes, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, that's what you see all of your life. 
And I think putting language to that is where, yeah, this is just so helpful and good. Yeah, because it is okay to have your own feelings and identity, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's also the piece where like, you said you struggle to deal with that tension of I take in the world through my heart center, but I don't move out in my heart center. Mm-hmm. That's something that threes, sixes being in the head triad in the center mm-hmm. of the head triad, and then nines being in the center of the gut triad. Like you all have a very unique struggle with your triads because of how influenced you are by the three, your shame, the six, their anxiety, the nine, their anger, but they don't realize it because they just repress the hell out of it. Uh, (laughs) But that's a tension that you guys deal with because it's so strong for you and it's so acutely painful. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, the way that the three takes in the world through their heart center also has a lot to do with their relationships with others and how they're being perceived. That is how you take an information. You read a room of like, how are people receiving me right now? And that is all, that's all very heart center. That's not Mm -hmm. very head. That's not very gut. That's mostly heart. It's what are people feeling about me? That's what I was going to say. I was like, man, this is, it's so much about when you walk into a room, what do they, there is a, there's a thought of what do they think of me? But I'm not thinking about what they actually are physically thinking. I'm thinking about what they're feeling, what they're, yep. what's my vibe to them. Yeah. And that is, yeah, it's a mind mess. It's yes. not good. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. I will say though, it is helpful to have a twin because I do have a, like mm. a, the built-in best friend that will yeah. always back you up and always be your hype man, yeah. which is so necessary. And that's why I think it's so good to have a close friend, mm. to have a best friend that's willing to hype you. Like we'll be in the gym. And I'll be thinking about some kind of choreography we learned last week. And it's a full-on jazz piece. And I'll start doing it. And Paul's like, your shoulder could be down more. And there's Jim Bro right next to me who's just looking out the corner of his eye in the mirror like, what you doing, bro? And I'm like, I'm like, not concerned. They all know we dance. I mean, we dance in the side room all the time. They can see it. But there is a level. Of, I would never have that confidence if unless Paul was there with mm. me. Or if I didn't process through that and know that awesome. I always had somebody to have my back. Huge gift. Huge mm. gift. That's really cool, man. So as we're kind of nearing the end here, Luke, how has the Enneagram helped you understand yourself and your relationships? And then secondly, how has it helped you understand others in your relationships? I think it's interesting to look at others first and then myself, because I think that the others, the way that I, the lens that I, I guess it is yourself and then others, but the way the lens you see the world is that you're, that everyone thinks like you, like everybody, of course, thinks like me. And so when you see other people who don't think like you or think differently, it's hard not to repress or make fun of or push down those elements that are different. And we see this in TV and like Friends and New Girl, where they like pick at each other for their uniquenesses. And it's like a almost a meme, like they become a bit of a caricature of the actual personality type. Uh And we, I think in sometimes a lesser level, depending on your personality, but pick on other people because of these things that we don't understand. Yes. And for a long time, I had a roommate and then even with close friends where I literally was like, where do you get off? What is going on? You must be crazy. Hmm. But the reality was, is that my brain is just wired differently than yours. And it has a lot to do with childhood trauma. And when we look at it from the lens of childhood trauma, and then also in, in the ability to learn about the other types, to then learn how to empathize more effectively, mm. we can then have more effective and meaningful relationships with so many more people that we might just get irritated with otherwise, even if they do still irritate you. Because the, th- the reality is that the closer you get to somebody, the more irritated that there's things that you will become irritated with. But if we look at people through the lens of how, I think how God looks at people, which is with this level of massive empathy, but then also from a human perspective that we can empathize with, oh my gosh, I cannot believe what you've potentially gone on in your life to create this. And I think that learning and understanding and asking people those questions helps you understand them better, but then also helps them knowing their type is also super, super beneficial. We were recently with a bunch of friends and friends I didn't know super duper well. And we asked, oh, do you guys know your Enneagram type? And everyone's like, I don't know. Somebody says I'm a seven, but I have no idea what that means. And I was like, let's look it up. This would be so fun. <laughs> and I don't have a good test or something. And I honestly don't like yeah. tests because I mistyped after a test. So I personally just like to read about them and say, which okay. one like stuck out to you? And we can read That's more about what that. I recommend for people. And so we just went through Enneagram Institute's short descriptions. Mm-hmm. And we tried based on those just to see, oh, can we pinpoint people or whatever? And we went around and we did. It was so fun. And then the next day, one of the people there was like, we didn't really speak up much during the conversation. So the next day I was still with this friend and I asked 
this guy, mm. what do you think your type is? And he goes, I don't know. So we looked at it like again, and I said, let's click into this type. I think this one might fit you well because of what I've seen over the course of this weekend. And we were able to really uncover some things, but then also like I started asking questions about someone's past and saying, when you were a kid, did this happen? Do you, when you're 25, cause I think that usually people say that you are fully developed at the age of 25. Sure. So the age of 25, yeah. what do you find the most prevalent to your personality right now? Sure. What do you find yourself being most drawn to in these situations? And then there's a lot of like lists of things that would potentially like make sense. Hmm. But I think the reality is that a lot of it does have to do with the back. We, we looked at that today. Like we see this level of worthlessness and success, this desire to be worth something, to achieve worth in some area driving me it still drives me today sometimes mm. i feel like because i have a some kind of following which i really i am friends with people who have massive followings and that if you want something to make you feel worthless that'll do it to you <laughs> but there is a there's a level of like understanding too of me being like i don't even want what you have is where i'm at okay am i content because where i'm at right now is where god wants me mm. and i if i continue to strive and it is a daily minute by minute battle to shift that perspective because yeah. this goal of why aren't we growing? Why aren't we seeing growth? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't mm. we being more relatable? We need to be more relatable. We need to do this. We need to sacrifice something in this area. What are our standards? Oh, does that have to actually be a standard? Mm. What if we get, showed a little more skin? Would that do better? There's, there is like this constant battle of what do I sacrifice to make more? Sure. And the reality is like, you are right where you're supposed to be. Yes. And that is very freeing. And confidence inducing that's oh yeah we're right where you need to be i don't need to be anything else i love the word in the core longing of the type three your love for simply being you i love the word simply yes i think that has so much to do honestly with presentness simply being here yep there's a simpleness in the present moment Mm -hmm. and i think you were just totally touching on that Mm. and i yeah i think that's an awesome thing yeah because the three sevens and eights also are future focused so we are always in the future right and even during this podcast i have thought several times of things i need to do once i get off this podcast (laughs) right because it's just a constant struggle to stay real and i know scott you know this is a seven because it is a never-ending battle of living Mm -hmm. in the future almost to the point of forgetting the moment and losing time by worrying about the future Mm -hmm. because i'm not worried about what i need to do right now i'm worried about what i need to do tomorrow but i can't do that till tomorrow so why am i worried about it you know, you know what? You know what's inefficient? Feelings. Yes. Oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Because feelings mean you have to be present to yourself, and you don't know when the feeling's going to wane, or when it's going to wax, or what the feeling necessarily is. And your boy it's is great. not good at that. Yeah, uh, not good. And there is a, there's a presentness, but there's also a stillness and aloneness that comes with that. Just something that I'm, it's so unfamiliar to me yeah. that on occasion I crave it. Today, I had to walk back to our house from the gym and then walk back some stuff. We were doing a video there. And in that time, I had about five, 10 minutes to myself. And I was like, whoa, this is nice. Whoa. I just listened to an audiobook. I wasn't feeling anything because that would be too meta. But I was listening to my audiobook and I was enjoying my present time alone. Sure. And in that moment, I remember thinking, be right here be right here at this moment because you don't get these often. <laughs> and honestly, that's a boundary we could set in our sure. working relationship because we do spend a lot of time together. So. Sure. Yeah, everything you've said has seriously been so good and helpful, Luke. Oh. You said before we started, this is your first podcast episode you've ever done, and I can't tell. Mm. So, oh, good. Um, yeah. So. I try, a chameleon. Stop it. <laughs> no, uh, you shared who you are and you're awesome. I was going to start, I think, of the podcast and say, you might see three different people throughout the course of the, because it is true. I, and I'll go back and be like, oh, he was trying too hard there. Ooh, <laughs> I will say this about the threes, and I want to close maybe with this. Great. Is that one of the biggest things that I've struggled with, and I struggle with to this day, and I think you touched on this, Scott, when you asked me, what, when you found your passions, what was that like? I came to the realization about a year ago that I don't know mm. what those are. I know that I like to dance because that's something that no one's been able to beat out of me. But other than that, who are you? Because I don't know. And I've just become what I need to become, which I think is why Paul and I come across so similarly because similarly, because I've just become what I see. Mm. And it is so hard to know what the uniquenesses are. And so many people have tried through their 
deductive reasoning and their observation of us to tell us what the differences are, which is true. There is a difference, but I'm still discovering who that is and I'm 30. So if you're not 30 and you're a three, start now (laughs) because it is so much harder the older you get. You just become whatever you need to be. Mm. And and it is so frustrating to not have the confidence to know what is it? Mm. Am I just morphing? Do I just like things that other people like because they're there? And there is a trend in my life of just liking things because other people do. Finding interests that other people have. Some I think are real and they're like very true. But there are some that I think that are just because of who I was around at the present moment and just becoming who I needed to be for them. And that's a lot of time lost. That's such good advice for anyone. It's really good advice for a three. What I have noticed in the people that I coach, in the threes that I've coached, in the threes that have been friends of mine, and the threes that I've heard speak on podcasts is that the pivotal moment for a type three when they begin to grow is when they ask the question, who am I? Absolutely. Because that's when the identifying, identification has stopped, right? Mm -hmm. That's when the, or at least paused for a moment, the I am what I do, or I am what this person thinks of me, or I am what that person feels. I am whatever these external forces are saying or whatever. When that voice, when that just stops for a second, the question of, wait, who am I? What's left? Who's inside here? I think that is one of the scariest questions for a three to ask. And I think it's the most important mm. question for a three to ask. And I think because we're heart-centered and we're repressed, that is one of the scariest questions to ask. Because what if you discover that what you are is something that other people won't like? Right. <laughs> or maybe what you are is okay with being a failure. There's this... this you will never be okay with being a failure, but sure. there is like a, a fear of what will I discover if I actually let that, Yeah. if I sit with that, if I actually stop for a moment and sit with that, because yeah. I'd rather think about the future and what I need to do tomorrow yeah. than think about that. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's a dark, it's a dark place when you don't sit and realize. And I think that's where, yeah. again, that's what's beautiful about the Enneagram because I could have never verbalized that for myself. Yeah. Ever. Right. Yeah. Ever. Totally. That's why I, I feel very similarly. Cool. Yeah, about my own type. Yeah. Awesome. Luke, this has been so good. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and just mm-hmm. you, just sharing who Luke is. It's been awesome. You're a beautiful person and you've got a stellar heart. So thanks for sharing <laughs> it with us. Thank you. I didn't think I'd cry, but I did. <laughs> I love it. I'm so glad you did. You're the first person on the podcast to cry. Congratulations. Oh! Episode 12. The tears came in. <laughs> the heart, the repressed heart center really came yeah. at it with a cry. <laughs> He's growing. He's growing, guys. We love to see it. <laughs> I saw Late Miz. I was holding that in. Yes. Awesome. Thanks again, Luke. Thanks for having me. I really, this is awesome. This is yeah. Of course. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening today, everyone. Scott and I just loved interviewing Luke. Mm-hmm. He was such a joy to talk to and it was so refreshing having someone be so vulnerable and honest, mm. you know? Yep. It was really great to see, especially from a three, what people see from threes or what they think of threes is that there's always an image. There's always there's always put a together. filter. Yeah, they're always put together. Yeah. And I think, at least for me, it was really refreshing. It was really cool to see Luke be so vulnerable. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. He took a risk to be seen. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go unnoticed. Very grateful for it. Please go and rate our podcast. Give us five stars on Spotify. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please share this episode with your friends. The reason we ask this is because this just helps spread the word. And we want people to find healing. That's our biggest heart in all of this. And so one of the biggest ways we find healing is through relating. Mm-hmm. And these and this platform is a place for people to share their stories so that we can relate. Also, stay tuned because our next episode that we're going to release starts our first fictional characters series. Woo! Scott, what are we doing? Tell the people. We are doing the Harry Potter films. Woo! Yes. And specifically, I like that you said films. That yes. That's good. So that you guys know. We are not doing it based off of the books. We are going to do Enneagram assessments of the types based off of the movies. Mm -hmm. Primarily because, well, the movies are easier to just watch them all through. They're also fabulous. But Mm -hmm. the reason why we're making the distinction is because oftentimes in the process of the translation from book to movie, 
directors often change what the primary motivation of the character is. So since we're talking primary motivations, Mm -hmm. we want to talk about the motivations of each character based off of their movie portrayals. Yes. And we've both read the books. We've both seen the movies. There's going to be some natural bleeding of thoughts on certain characters, but our goal, as Sawyer mentioned, is to try and have evidence and an understanding of the types purely based off of the films. Yeah. Just to clear things up, as many of you know who are bigger fans, some characters, more than others, may be portrayed one way in the books and come off a different way in the films. And what's also fun about this is Scott and I are not telling each other at all what (laughs) characters we think are which Enneagram types. So the first time that you will hear us propose an Enneagram type for a character in the Harry Potter series Mm -hmm. will be on the air with each other. So we hope you guys listen, tune in, enjoy it. And yeah, thanks again for listening today. And always remember, we need a tool like the Enneagram to grow in self-awareness because what you don't own owns you. Be well, friends. Cowabunga. Cowabunga. I love it. <laughs> they have number of followers. I thought he said 300,000, but I thought you had said 3 million. I think I accidentally <laughs> said 3 million. Yeah. You just stop that. <laughs> you log on to TikTok. And it just immediately starts playing videos. Mm-hmm. Okay. They have over 300,000 followers on TikTok. Nope. That wasn't a, 30, that wasn't a number. Thousand. It wasn't a number. <laughs> 300,000 <laughs> million billion trillion followers. Yep. That's <laughs> where we're at today. So that's just where we're at. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> um... All right. I hope you guys all enjoy our episode with Luke. Nice. Baba booey. Baba Okay. Outro. Outro.